From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. A very, very patriotic how do you do on this 4th of July for you. Um, Uncle Sam could not make the program today. We offered an invitation, but he was not there, so we'll have to go with the status quo. Father Wade Menezes is in the house, but we will not be taking your phone calls today. So just cozy up to the grill, uh, grab a nice cold lemonade, sit out on the back porch and listen to us for the next hour as we empty out the mailbag here on EWTN's Open Line. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and uh, Father Wade... Um, you've got kind of a Yankee Doodle Dandy lineup here for your uh, opening on this 4th of July. Yeah, I've come across some great quotes, uh, Jack, from some of the founding fathers of our great country, these 50 United States, and just wanted to share them, even uh, some more modern quotes uh, regarding freedom. And just wanted to share these to kind of put things in perspective on what... I've heard it's not free. That's exactly right. And it can easily and soon be forgotten. Uh, and so I just want to focus on on this great gift we have in the freedom of this democ- democracy of ours and just how wonderful these 50 states united are. Uh, we have John Adams. You know, he was the first vice president and the second president of the United States. He was a major figure during the American Revolution and uh, the drafting of the Declaration of Independence he had a big part in and the shaping of the U.S. Constitution as well. He wrote, quote, regarding the Constitution, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. In other words, Adams recognized that the preservation of liberty is not guaranteed. Without the guardrails supplied by religious faith and moral conviction, popular sovereignty can devolve into mob rule, unmoored from any conception of objective truth. And that's a, that's a pretty scary thing. Snatched from today's headlines. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Ronald Reagan, the 40th president of the United States, uh, from 81 to 89, once warned that, quote, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Uh, We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it on to them to do the same for their succeeding generations. And it's interesting that George Weigel, the official biographer of Pope St. John Paul II, he says that a democracy without values is self-cannibalizing. It eats away at itself. He says freedom absent from moral truth becomes its own worst enemy. Uh, And in regards to nations, uh, just in general, uh, John Paul II and Pope Paul VI both intimated that nations that abandon the truth uh, eventually run the risk of becoming totalitarian uh, in regime. And and there's an interesting uh, quote that's often attributed to an 18th century professor at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland that regards democracy. Picture a a two-sided mountain, and and the first part of this quote goes up the mountain, and the second part of the quote comes down the mountain. Listen to this. Uh, He says, quote, A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. A democracy always ends up collapsing over loose fiscal policy and has always been followed by a dictatorship. He says, This is because the people go from bondage to spiritual truth, from spiritual truth 
to great courage, from great courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, but from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and from dependence back once again to bondage. Very, very telling quote regarding uh, how precious a democracy is. And uh, this is very, very powerful. It's worth sharing on this 4th of July when St. John Paul II in 1976, still as Cardinal Wojtyla, giving his farewell address at the Eucharistic Congress, Jack, in Philadelphia, said these words, both startling and prophetic. He says, quote, We are now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has ever experienced. I do not think the wide circle of the American society or the wide circle of the Christian community realize this fully. We are now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church, between the gospel and the anti-gospel, between Christ and the antichrist. This confrontation lies within the plans of divine providence. It is therefore in God's plan, and it must be a trial which the church must take up and face courageously. We must prepare ourselves to suffer great trials before long, such as will demand of us a disposition to give up even life and a total dedication to Christ and for Christ. With your and my prayers, it is possible to mitigate the coming tribulation, but it is no longer possible to avert it, because only thus can the church be effectually renewed. How many times has the renewal of the church sprung from the shedding of blood? This time, too, it will not be otherwise. We must be strong and prepared and trust in Christ and in his Holy Mother and be very, very assiduous in praying the Most Holy Rosary. Again, that was Cardinal Wojtyla in 1976 in his farewell address at the Eucharistic Congress in Philadelphia where the Eagles play, the same stadium, huh? Uh, and this was a year before he was, uh, two years before he was elected Pope in 1978. He said these startling words in 1976. And although it's more faith-based, it ties to the truth and beauty of freedom and democracy being supported by moral revealed truth. And yet 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us, quote, the Spirit distinctly says that in latter times some will turn away from the faith and will heed deceitful spirits and things taught by demons through plausible liars, men with seared consciences. And this reminds me of number 675, that passage from 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 and 2 says that I just read. Uh, number 675 of the Catechism says this, before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers, quoting Luke 18 and Matthew 24. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception, offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God and of his Messiah come in the flesh. Jesus Christ. So again, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2, the Spirit distinctly says that in latter times some will turn away from the faith and will heed deceitful spirits and things taught by demons through plausible liars, men with seared consciences. And that doubles up beautifully with number 675. This is why I love uh, the conversion story 
of Abby Johnson, who for years was a abortion facility director who turned a pro-life activist, who now helps abortion facility staff leave the industry. Uh, the popular 2019 movie Unplanned was about her conversion story. She says this, quote, I don't think I would be at the place I am on this healing journey if it hadn't been for the Catholic Church. Such things as the sacraments, Eucharistic adoration, and the Church's explicit teachings on mercy and forgiveness have helped me immensely. The Church helps people understand sin and how to be free of it. How beautiful is that? And there's freedom in that. Uh, what Abby Johnson is telling us about her beautiful conversion is that there's freedom in that conversion. Uh, George Washington, the first president of the United States, from a letter uh, to the Hebrew congregation in Newport in 1790 says, May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness upon our paths and make us all in our several vocations useful here and in his own due time and way everlastingly happy. So he's addressing the marrieds, the singles, uh, the widows and widowers. He's addressing pastors. He's addressing everybody. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness upon our paths and make us all in our several vocations useful here and in his own due time everlastingly happy so there's some quotes jack on uh, the the founding of our country and how that ties into our catholic view of human freedom and democracy and how those must be upheld by revealed moral truth uh, even John Adams, again, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson dated 1813, he says, The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence for this country were the general principles of Christianity. Uh, George Washington, quote, You will do well to learn above all the religion of Jesus Christ. And Jacob Broom, a signer of the Constitution to his son, says, Don't forget to be a Christian. I have said much to you on this point, and I hope to leave an indelible impression upon you. Uh, so, so just some great quotes on, uh, on the founding and the founding documents of our country. And then I, I just want to wrap up with these three quotes regarding a nation from Scripture, Proverbs 14, Psalm 11, and 2 Chronicles uh, 7. Um, Proverbs 14, 34 says this, uh, says this uh, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That's Proverbs 14.34. And Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday on this 4th of July. And Father Wade is in the house, and we're going to empty out the mailbag. Jim writes in, I have not found where I can find an answer to this question. Does the general confession we state at Mass forgive venial sin? Do we need to go to confession for penance and absolution if the answer is yes to a previous question? To the, the previous question. If we still need to go to confession for penance and absolution, why say the general confession at Mass? Okay, well, 
Jim, I think by general confession, you're referring to the penitential rite. And it is a general confession of venial sins, not mortal sins. So the whole purpose of the penitential rite at the beginning of Mass, and there's different options for the penitential rite. There's the confidior, uh, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, etc., etc. Then there's uh, penitential rite B, which hardly ever gets used, but I love it personally. It's uh, The celebrant says, have mercy on us, O Lord, and the people respond, for we have sinned against you. Then the priest says, show us, O Lord, your mercy, and the people respond, and grant us your salvation. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. So for that first option, the confidior, and the second option of have mercy on us, O Lord, it's followed up by the, the trope Kyrie and Christe, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. But then there's also uh, a third option for the penitential rite where the Kyrie is interjected within the invocations, and I believe there's nine different sets of those that are possible, and, and we hear those pretty frequently as well. In fact, I like the fact that those are seasonal. There's penitential ones worded such for Lent, for example. There's incarnational ones uh, for the Christmas season, which are worded as such, etc. So the Church always has the liturgical year in mind, right? But you're talking here in your question, Jim, about the penitential rite, and in one sense it is a general confession. The whole purpose of the penitential rite at the beginning of Mass is so that we want our venial sins forgiven so that when we come up to Holy Communion a half hour from then, we won't even have venial sins in our soul. And if you are aware of mortal sins on your soul that you haven't had the opportunity to confess yet, it's understood that you wouldn't get into the confessional line because the confessional line has a deep theolo theological reality about it. It's a communion line for those who are precisely in Holy Communion to receive the Eucharist. And you wouldn't do that if you're consciously aware of mortal sin that has not yet been confessed, okay? You want to get to confession first to, con to confess that sin, that mortal sin. So uh, you're asking, uh, uh, do we need to go to confession for penance and absolution if the answer is yes to the previous question? Well, the answer is, is no. I, uh, the, the general confession we state at Mass, excuse me, it's, it's yes, it does forgive venial sin. And because of that, you do not need to go to confession for penance and absolution of that venial sin because it's already been forgiven during the penitential rite. Okay, what the penitential rite doesn't do is forgive you of mortal sin, and so you'd want to get to confession for that. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We're not taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag episode, send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. Melissa wants to know, what is the best way to help homeless beggars on the street that leads them to a better life? Oh, great question. Uh, you know, I, I like the, the different options, Melissa, that do not support any bad, viceful habits they might have in regards to drugs or alcohol, okay? I think that's important. So I like to look at such things as gift cards, say to restaurants, fast food restaurants, or even the generic um, credit card gift cards of major credit card names, but it it acts as a debit card. Um, you can give that as a gift card, something that they can have tangibly as a gift card uh, to go get food, to go get groceries, whatever. Also, uh, canned goods that have the pop-off lid that you grab with your index finger in a loop and pull it back. You can buy canned goods that are already cooked and ready to eat that have those pop-off lids so they don't need to have the 
the cumbersome reality of working with a can opener there on the streets if they're homeless. It, it opens up easy enough. Uh, also, clothing. Clothing can always be given at any time of year. I think that's very important to give. So there's three categories right there, and I, I admire your question, Melissa. You know, there is better ways to help the homeless on the street that leads them to a better life rather than supporting <coughs> an addiction that they might have. So that's, that's very good on your part to ask that. Thank you so much for a great question. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Not taking your phone calls today. Randall writes in, what is the Catholic response to imputation, the belief that God punished Jesus? Okay, great question. Uh, Jesus had perfect free will in his human nature to do the will of the Father. In fact, he tells us that. Uh, I lay down my life freely. Uh, and I, I lay it down for the Father, and I do so freely. No one makes me do it. That's John 10, 18. And uh, imputation is, is an interesting doctrine in the Protestant faith as regards to how it's seen in the Catholic Church. So uh, it, it's worth looking at. And Father John Harden has a, has a good, uh, uh, simple, short, to the point um, uh, definition of it in his uh dictionary, the, the Father John Harden dictionary, and I want to read that right here as I pull it up, the, the doctrine of imputation, if I can find it here, um, because it's nice and tight and a, and a short, curt uh, answer that he gives. Um, right here, Father Harden says, uh, imputation regards attribute or praise or even blame or punishment to someone, whether the person is actually responsible for the, the praise or the blame or the punishment or not. Okay, it's imputed upon them, right? Uh, in Reformation theology, the doctrine says that uh, there's, that in, in, Re in Reformation theology, Protestant Reformation theology, it's a doctrine that says that sins are not imputed to those who are destined to be saved because of the holiness of Christ. The same term is sometimes applied to Christ in the opposite sense. He allowed himself to be considered a sinner, although he was innocent, and this humiliating, uh, humiliating imputation merited man's salvation, okay? So there's elements of truth in that, but what needs to be said is the first point I made, and we can find this in John 10, 18, if it was strictly, strictly imputation in its truest sense, Christ would have had no say in it. The Father would have cast it upon him, and he would have had to have done it. But yet, he chose freely to do the will of the Father, and that's what's important. That's what's important to remember here. We can't have the j j just the Protestant Reformation theology. We have to add the fact that Jesus did it freely. So it's not imputation in the strictest sense. Uh, and that's important to take into account. Um, I'm pulling up John 10, 18 right now. Again, it's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday. John, uh, no one takes it from me, but I lay down my life on my own. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. So there you have it. Uh, the theology of imputation and always making the distinctions that are necessary. 
Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag, by all means, send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. Nicole writes in, why does Jesus use the word woman to address his mother? Would it have been culturally shocking at that time? (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) There's debate on that very question, but I think we can arrive at a safe answer. You know, when we address our mother, we typically use uh, any number of affectionate terms like mom or mother or or mama, you know, if we're we're younger. However, one word we don't ever seem to say is woman to our mother. Woman, you know, can I come over for supper tonight? (laughs) Woman, will you fix supper for me tonight? You know, we, we usually don't address our mom that way. Most of our moms would consider that disrespectful and expect an apology. Yet Jesus used that very word when he addressed his mother. Uh, at the wedding feast of Cana. Why is that? Uh, First of all, uh, whenever we read something in the Bible in our native language, it is a translation. We have to remember that. Uh, Translations can only go so far, and in this case, it doesn't fully express what Jesus was saying. There's a great article by Father John Mayo. He says this, the word for woman used in this context in the original Greek is uh, is in what is called the the vocative sense or the vocative case. Uh, When the noun woman is used in such a way, it is always meant as a term of respect or endearment he says. Uh, So one scripture scholar explained that the Greek word used is more like the the word ma'am or lady than the word woman as we use it in the English. So that's one answer right there uh, in in that regard, okay? Um, Nicole, that's one answer for Nicole. Uh, Again, it would be more in the sense of the vocative case, uh, even for that time, it would be something more formal like we use ma'am or lady today. That's how and why Jesus used woman. It was a wedding feast, after all, where things are more formal. Uh, however, that said, Jesus, while may, he may have been his, addressing his mother in a respectful manner, uh, why doesn't he just call her mom? Well, one, I just said one reason is that the, the wedding feast itself was a formal, a formal event. Many scripture scholars point to another passage in the New Testament to explain Jesus' word choice. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to the crowd, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brethren, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So in this way, Jesus wanted to emphasize that faithful adherence to the gospel message is what is most important, transcending the physical bonds or the blood bonds of family. That's important. And another way to understand this word choice is that when Jesus addressed his mother at Cana, he wanted to show that his mission on earth was not aimed at performing miracles for his family members. This is a great reason here. But for the salvation of the whole world, uh, in this way, Jesus did not respond to his mother's request because of his familial ties, but because it was in accord with the will of God. And additionally, many scholars connect Jesus' usage of the word mother to the first woman, Eve. which Mary is a type or symbol of. Uh, In Genesis, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the Virgin Mary is often seen as the new Eve who, who crushed the head of the serpent by her faithful obedience at the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel said uh, that she would bear the Messiah. And in this context, of course, Jesus uh, seeks to confirm his mother as the new Eve in front of everybody at this formal wedding event and thus hold her up uh, as, as having an instrumental role uh, in salvation history. So it could have just been a formal 
term meaning lady or ma'am as we use it today. Number two, Jesus wanted to not emphasize only familial blood ties, but discipleship ties are more important. And number three, Jesus wanted to exalt his mother in regards to tying her to being the new Eve, okay? And, and that's very, very important. And so uh, he encourages us to call her mother at the foot of the cross. So uh, last of all, Jesus uses the word in his last moments before dying, right? He says to John, woman, behold your son. Then he says to the disciple, behold your mother. So there he's using woman and mother side by side. This again points to something deeper. It is believed that Jesus used woman in this way to show how the Virgin Mary is not simply his own mother, but the mother of us all. He entrusts her to us, the beloved disciple, and encourages us to call her mother. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag edition, uh, simply send us an email. That open that email address is openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, we've got a great little vignette on our YouTube channel called Bookmark Brief, where Doug Keck takes just a couple minutes and gives you a taste of what the previous week's EWTN Bookmark episode was all about. And if you'd like to have it, we could actually send it right to your email inbox. Simply visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. A mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday on this 4th of July. Winston writes in, is God capable of evil? No, Winston, he is not. But he does, in his mysterious and divine will, permit evil. He doesn't cause it, but he permits it because he lets things function according to their natures. Uh, I answered this, I believe it was last week on the June 27th show, a very similar question. God does not uh, cause evil, he's all good, but he does permit evil to bring a greater good out of it uh, than what would have happened if the evil hadn't have taken place. Uh, I think Johnette often says that. Jack. Yeah, um, I believe it's Thomas Aquinas was the original, but she's yeah, good too. Yeah, she's good too. <laughs> <laughs> so unless uh, a greater good can come from the evil, and also uh, a greater good that than what would have not been able to come if the evil didn't take place. Yeah, if it could prevent an even greater evil. And if it could prevent an even greater evil. Well stated, well stated. So there you have it. But this, this is part of his mysterious divine will, but he lets things function according to their nature. And kind of united to this, I said this last week on the show, Thomas Aquinas talks about the fall, which of course ushered in the original sin, which brings evil into the world, right? Through a darkened intellect and a weakened will. Uh, that's, this is what gets life messy, is the darkened intellect and a weakened will. Before the fall of our first parents, we had a strengthened will and an enlightened intellect. Uh, but after the fall of our first parents, which ushered in the original sin, the strengthened will became weakened and the enlightened intellect became darkened. So vice now competes with virtue, for example. Well, prior to the fall of our first parents, which ushered in, in the original sin, Thomas Aquinas teaches, even if the fall of our first parents had not have taken place, we would still have to do things like 
milk the cow after she gave birth. We would still have to do things like shuck the corn, pick it and shuck it before we could eat it. We would still have to do things like cut down a tree and clean it before we can use it as a, as a clean log to build the house. The only difference is we would have enjoyed doing these things. There would have been no sweat of the brow if there hadn't been the original sin. But because there is the original sin, there's now the sweat of the brow and the pangs of labor, etc. Uh, so God, God lets things function according to their nature. So it's the nature of a cow to need to be milked after she gives birth to her calf in order to get the milk. Uh, it's it's the, the nature of corn to be picked and shucked before it can be enjoyed, you know, with, with butter and salt on corn on the cob. And it's the nature of a tree to have to be cut down and cleaned before it can be used for a building project, like a house. So God works with things according to their nature. So he will permit evil for those three cases that we just mentioned, uh, but he doesn't cause the evil. Great, great question in regards to uh, dogmatic theology. Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Uh, Brian's email reads, If I can't be absolved of something right now, can God still hear my prayers? Are my prayers still efficacious? They are, and this is why it's important to make a daily examination of conscience. However, if mortal sin, uh, you're able to continue receiving actual grace, but not sanctifying grace— until the mortal sin is confessed. And with just venial sin, you can continue to receive both sanctifying and actual grace. So uh, if, if, you're, if you're talking about mortal sin, uh, you want to get it absolved. And remember, even before we get to the confessional, to confess the mortal sin, make an act of contrition immediately after you've committed the mortal sin. This is very, very important. We forget this, right? Uh, and the Church even teaches that if you cannot reasonably get to confession, you can receive communion, even with that mortal sin in your soul, provided you've made a perfect act of contrition, which means an act of contrition where you're sorry for your mortal sin, mostly because they've offended God, and secondarily because of what they threaten you with, uh, you know, an eternity in hell. Um, but that should not become a habit. Such, a, such a, a sequence of events should not become a habit. The habit should be to always want to receive Holy Communion with no mortal sin on your soul. That said, the Church does teach if you're not able to get to confession, to confess mortal sin in a reason, uh, with any amount of reasonability or a reasonable amount of time, you can make a perfect act of contrition and still go to confession, and still attempt to go to confession as soon as is, as is reasonably possible. So I love the traditional act of contrition because it says, uh, and I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but most of all because they have offended you, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. That's the perfect act of contrition where you're mostly sorry for your sins, precisely, capital P, because they've offended God, and then only secondarily because of what they threaten you with, a temporal punishment in purgatory or on earth or eternal punishment in hell. An imperfect act of contrition, which does not suffice to forgive for mortal sin, uh, is the reverse of that. It's when you're mostly sorry for your sins because of what they threaten you with, uh, eternal damnation in hell or temporal punishment in purgatory or on earth. Uh, by embracing suffering and illness and so forth. That's what I mean by on earth. Uh, so if we're in a state of mortal sin, we cannot efficaciously, efficaciously merit sanctifying grace, but we can continue to receive actual grace, which will get us 
back in God's favor to get our life back on track. And this is very, very important. So this is why it's so important to make uh, a confession uh, a regular uh, reality in our life. And I'm a big advocate, uh, a very big advocate of, of monthly confession. And that cannot be uh, forgotten enough. And it builds your faith. Yeah, huh? It builds your faith. And That's... it gets you closer to being able to more easily make a perfect That's act, exactly right. Contrition. Whenever we talk about this, it, it reminds me of the three Hebrew children in the Old Testament mm-hmm. that were being threatened to be thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. And Shadrach, I think, stepped forward and said, our God is more than capable of delivering us from your hand, O king. Yeah. But even if he does not, we will not bow down to your image. And uh, that's faith. Yeah, that is faith. You know, actual grace is that special help which the Holy Spirit gives us to enlighten our minds and to inspire and guide our wills to do good and to avoid evil in particular situations, thus to get our life back on track, as Jack and I just said. It consists in temporary gifts of divine light for our minds and divine powers for our hearts, where sanctifying grace is a stable disposition of reception from God. And what takes us out of that state of sanctifying grace? Mortal sin. So the actual sin we can look upon as as a frequent but temporary gifts of divine light for our minds and divine powers for our hearts, where sanctifying grace is a permanent disposition of reception. Special mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday on this 4th of July. Nancy would like to know, what's the difference between the particular judgment and the last judgment? Great question, Nancy, and I want to encourage you to get my book, if you haven't already, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell. Uh, Five simple short chapters in this order, Death, Judgment, heaven, hell, and chapter five, the necessity of the spiritual life. And uh, You know what I've taken to doing since that book came out? What's that? Personally, I pray for the three last things. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, four last things. Want, Jack, I don't want any part of that fourth last thing. <laughs> yeah, Jack's right. The church's eschatology, which means the study of the last things, and there's four of them, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Uh, the church's eschatology teaches there are four last things— three of which will apply to each one of us personally, death, judgment, heaven, or hell. Okay, Four last things, but three of which will apply to each one of us, because it's impossible for the reunited body and soul to go to both heaven and hell. It's got to be one or the other. So I want to uh, encourage you, Nancy, to go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1022, about the particular judgment, and Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1038, about the last judgment. So the particular judgment is when the individual dies— prior to the second coming of Christ, and you're judged, you receive your judgment then, and it will be ratified at the general judgment for all to know what it is and why it is what it is. Uh, This is very important. And the the last judgment is just that. It's when Christ comes, this begins at number 1038, uh, the resurrection of all the dead when Christ comes again. And, uh, uh, that's the difference between the two. So the particular judgment, again, is when the individual person dies. That's number 1022 of the Catechism. We read this. Uh, Each person receives his eternal retribution and his immortal soul at the very moment of his death in a particular judgment that refers his life to Christ, either with entrance into the blessedness of heaven immediately or through a prior purification first, or immediate and everlasting damnation. So while heather can be while heaven can be immediate or delayed, hell can only be immediate for the soul going to hell. There's no prior delayment 
to hell like there is to heaven, purgatory, if a person dies not yet pure, uh, perfectly purified. But if you die on earth perfectly purified, there is no need to go to purgatory. You go straight to heaven. And then the last judgment is just that, the second coming of Christ that we profess belief in in the Nicene Creed every Sunday at Mass, I believe, in the, in the judgment of the, of the living and the dead. And uh, number 1039 is very telling, uh, when all will be revealed about each one's particular judgment and why that's the case. We read this, um, in the presence of Christ, who is truth itself, the truth of each man's relationship with God will be laid bare. The last judgment will reveal, even to its furthest consequences, the good that each person has done or failed to do during his earthly life. And there's a great quote that follows from St. Augustine, um, and that's number 1039 of the Catechism. Why is the particular judgment ratified at the general judgment for all to know what it is for each person and why it is what it is for each person? Number 1039 makes it all very, very clear. So again, uh, the particular judgment, number 1022 of the Catechism, the last judgment or the general judgment, number 1038, and don't forget number 1039 that talks about the ratification of each one's particular judgment at the general judgment. Great question, Nancy. Thank you so much. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We're not taking your phone calls today, but you can send us an email and be part of a future show. Uh, just send the email to openline at EWTN.com. John writes in, when Christ came, he said that the old laws didn't apply anymore and that the new law is love. Is this true, and can you help me understand this? Yeah, great question. So, First of all, uh, for example, in the Old Testament, we see this time and again, and one example is, is Hosea 6, verse 6, uh, when we hear the prophet, uh, God say to the prophet, I desire a humble and contrite heart, or I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, that we're starting to see the earliest intimations of the importance of love, one of the three theological virtues, like 1 Corinthians 13, 13 tells us, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Um, also, Matthew five seventeen. Jesus makes clear, I did not come to abolish the old law or the old covenant, but to bring it to fulfillment. And what's interesting about that word, fulfillment, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, to bring something to fulfillment means to render it perfect. And precisely because it's now been rendered perfect, there's no other changes to be made to it to make it even better because it's already now perfect. Nothing could be added to it. So when he says, I did not come to abolish the old law, but to bring it to perfection or to bring it to fulfillment, he means that he's bringing the Old Testament, he's rendering it perfect in the New Covenant, the New Testament. And love is what that reality is. You know, it's interesting that when he says that in Matthew uh, uh, 5.17, I did not come to abolish the old law, but to bring it to fulfillment. He says that when, right after he gives the eight or nine, depending on what translation of Scripture you're looking at, right after he gives the nine Beatitudes, which many of the Church Fathers called the uh, handmaidens to the, to the uh, Ten Commandments. So, you know, you ask any lawyer, uh, there's a strict interpretation of the law, strict letter of the law, but there's also a, a spirit of the law. So Jesus didn't come to abolish the Ten Commandments from the Old Covenant. No, we still have them. But he did bring them to fulfillment, and he gave us their handmaidens, which are the nine Beatitudes or the eight Beatitudes. So uh, 
where the Ten Commandments could be considered the strict letter of the law, you shall this, you shall not this, you shall this, you shall not this. The imperatives that they are, that's why they're called the Ten Commandments, because an imperative is a command. That's why they're called the Ten Commandments as opposed to, say, the Ten Suggestions. They're not suggestions, they're commandments. Uh, Jesus has not come to do away with those, but to bring them to fulfillment. And he gives us the eight Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God. So how we live the Ten Commandments by way of the Beatitudes is a life of love and giving and other-centeredness. And again, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And of course, we know from 1 John 4, God is love. And this brings us back full circle now to the to the 1 Corinthians 13, 13 passage, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Why is that? Well, because love abides in heaven because God is love. But faith does not abide in heaven because there's no need for it. Why? Because in heaven, the object of faith, God, will have been uh, received, will have been attained, is the word I'm looking for. The object of faith, God, will have been attained for those who go to heaven. How about hope? Is there hope in love? Is there hope in heaven? No, there's no need for hope in heaven. Why? Because the object of hope, God, will have been attained by virtue of going to heaven. But love, will love abide in heaven? Oh yeah, love will abide in heaven. Why? Because God is love. That's why. So, so great question on, on what exactly did Christ mean by bringing the, the old covenant to fulfillment based on love. Thank you so much, John. Our next email on this mailbag edition of Open Line Tuesday comes from Diane, and she asks, Why does a priest have authority to bless holy water, and what does holy water do? Great question. Well, a priest has uh, authority not only to bless holy water, but uh, uh, the authority to bless any sacramental, right? Sacramentals are sacred signs instituted by the Church. They prepare us to receive the fruit of the sacraments and sanctify different circumstances of life. So you could bless a rosary and it becomes a sacramental, a holy a holy water. Holy water is a very special one, though, uh, uh, Diane, because it precisely calls to mind our baptism in Christ. And this is why when we bless ourselves with holy water, for example, when entering the church, we bless ourselves by making the sign of the cross, or while making the sign of the cross, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, the Catechism tells us in 1678, among the sacramentals, blessings occupy an important place, like a parent blessing their children, for example, before they go off to college. Uh, they include praise of God for his works and gifts, or the prayer before meals is another example. Uh, and the Church's intercession for humans, uh, that they be able to use God's gifts according to the spirit of the gospel. And in addition to the liturgy, Christian life is nourished by various forms of popular piety, rooted in different cultures, while carefully clarifying them in the light of faith. The Church fosters the forms of popular piety and devotion, like the Rosary, like the Divine Mercy Chaplet, which the beads themselves can be considered sacramentals if they're blessed, uh, that express an evangelical instinct uh, and a human wisdom that enriches Christian life. So even the religious habit of religious, when it's blessed during the ceremony of the novice, the investiture of the novice, or the investiture of the junior professed nun, it becomes a sacramental as well. It leads us to a greater sign that's found in the sacraments. But holy water holds pride of place precisely because it calls to mind our baptism in Jesus Christ, and we make that sign of the cross while we touch and bless ourselves with the holy water. I want to give you a personal invitation to join Matt Swaim and Annie Mitchell uh, on the Sunrise Morning Show tomorrow morning and every morning, Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Daryl would like to know, how do you measure good works and know when you've done enough? 
What happens to someone who makes a deathbed conversion and was not able to do any works? All right. Well, you're asking the question as though Catholics believe that we can somehow quantify them, which is what our Protestant brethren think we do. But that is not the case. The Church does not teach that. Uh, we don't measure, per se, good works for the works themselves and know when we've done enough. A good paragraph in the Catechism to look to, Daryl, is number 2008, where we read this. Um, uh, it's in regards to merit, because of, of good works and merit, right? Uh, the merit of man before God in the Christian life arises in fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace, okay? The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative. We can never do anything to get that grace from God. It's always God's first initiative, all right? Uh, and, and that we share with the, with the Protestants. The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative and then follows man's free acting through his collaboration with God so that the merit of good works is to be attributed in the first place to the grace of God itself, not to man's action of having done the work. That's, that's not what's important here, but that God's grace made it possible. Uh, and then the faithful benefit from that reality. Man's merit, moreover, itself is due to God, for his good actions proceed in Christ from the predispositions and, assist and assistance given by the Holy Spirit, based on the truth that man is social by nature. This is why the primary reason for doing the good works, which are always by God's initiative through his grace, is through love, which kind of builds off beautifully from the previous question from, uh, or the two previous questions from John uh, about the old laws brought to perfection through love. Uh, we do the good works to be other-centered, to aid our fellow human being, our fellow human person. L look at the beautiful work of Mother Teresa, for example, okay? Not that not that charitable work should do it all and the government not have to do anything. No, the government should have to do its part too to help alleviate suffering, etc., and the poor and whatnot. But as Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you, right? So Mother Teresa took this to heart and wanted to do the good works, not for the works themselves, but for the love and that they help prosper to our neighbor and to help alleviate our neighbor's suffering, okay? And they're always done... Uh, through God's grace and by his grace, which is always his first act as the primary mover, capital P, capital M. We don't do the works for the works themselves, and we don't do them on a qualifying, or excuse me, quantifying basis. That's not what the Church teaches. And as far as deathbed conversions go, yes, it is possible for one to be saved on their deathbed. God can do that. That is is not his plan A for us, it's safe to say, by what's been revealed to all of us. Um, his, his plan A for us is to be uh, living a life of the sacraments, whether single, married, or a consecrated religious, or widowed, uh, or even divorced, uh, living an active sacramental life of the three sacraments of initiation, the two sacraments of union, and the two sacraments of healing, receiving Eucharist regularly, receiving confession regularly, and growing in his grace, his sanctifying grace, through the sacramental economy of the Church, rather than put everything off to a deathbed conversion, there wouldn't be much merit in that. Again, not merit based on my own works, but by what God wills for me through his grace, right? So 
we want to follow his plan A for us. Our baptism calls us to live a certain life. Our confirmation calls us to live a certain life. And so that's his plan A for us with regular reception of the Eucharist and living a holy and sanctified marriage or living a, a holy widowhood or a holy priesthood or a holy consecrated life, whether active or contemplative. But but yes, it is possible for a deathbed conversion. This is why the last rites are so important. But the person has to have made it known to loved ones if they're incapacitated at the time of their deathbed conversion that they would have wanted that, okay? They would have wanted the priest to have come. This is why it's so important to make that known to your loved ones, that if you ever become incapacitated, like in a car accident or something, please make sure you call the priest. And I got to tell you, it's very sad, but there's a lot of 18 to 40-year-olds today who no longer practice their Catholic faith, who have no idea, no idea what to do for mom or dad, who are 50 years of age and older when mom and dad are dying on their deathbed, whether it's because of cancer through a slow demise of cancer, whether it be because of a car accident that put them in ICU immediately and they're soon to die in ICU within hours after the car accident. These 18 to 40 year olds who are lapsed from the faith, they no longer practice their Catholic faith and haven't for years. They have no idea to call the priest for mom or dad. They have no idea to ask for the last rites, the five elements of the last rites. They have no idea to ensure that the priest imparts the apostolic pardon. And it's, it's a tragedy. It's a travesty. And the devil loves it. And this is why we need to make it known to our loved ones that I, I prefer not a deathbed conversion. I want to receive the sacraments regularly in my life, so much so that, it, that when I am finally dying, please be sure you call the priest for the so-called last rites. And by the way, the, the five elements of the last rites uh, include... Um, confession, if the person feels the need to go, or if they can go, they may not be able to go again if they're in ICU and they're they're uh, covered with apparatus on them in the ICU unit because of a car accident, let's say. Um, confession, if they're able, is number one. Uh, Holy Viaticum, one's final Holy Communion, if they're able, they may not be able to, again, because of the apparatus. Number three is uh, the anointing of the sick which can always be received because the priest can anoint other parts of the body and still fulfill the sacramental requirement of the anointing of the sick. Uh, number four, which can always be received, is the prayers of commendation for the dying, which includes the litany of the saints being prayed over you by the priest during the last rites. How beautiful is that, that Holy Mother Church commands her priest to pray the litany of the saints over you while you're dying? And number five, the apostolic pardon. These are the five elements that constitute the so-called last rites. So, uh, very, very important question. Thank you so much, Daryl. You know, as I sit here and I watch you read out of your personal uh, edition of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, at, at what point, when you put a post-it tab on every page, <laughs> do the post-it tabs cease to mean anything? They, they really don't. I kind of know where to go right away. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's somewhat color-coded, so it, it helps me out. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. Thank you so much for sharing a part of your 4th of July with us. We hope you have a safe and happy rest of your day. We'll be back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until we get together then, God bless. God bless.